she said to me, well, why do you think you're stuck in this little rut? And I said, well, maybe I've started to suck and nobody has the courage to tell me because I've seen that happen to other people. That's the thought process. That's how I get inside my own head. And that's where I can become self-destructive. Well, you've got to challenge that, Brian, because you do not suck. So stop with that. (laughs) You're only mediocre. You don't suck. All right, here we go again, coping on the couch with Courtney and Brian. Courtney Kelly, a therapist, mental health-wise, for quite some time. I, Brian Mulhern, a longtime patient, and I have to welcome Courtney back. Yes. For episode 99, (laughs) one short of the centennial, and maybe some cake next week, don't forget. I'm so excited for cake. Good cake. Okay. Not cheap cake. (laughs) Is cookie puss good cake? I'm not sure. Hmm. Entenmans? I don't (laughs) know. We'll have to have a discussion about that. Mm -hmm. But we did miss you last week. Thanks to Ben DeCastro for filling in. Do you want to discuss your absence or not? That's completely up to you. I had the COVID. You had the vid. Yeah. I was hit with the COVID stick, but I'm doing much better. And it was a quick progression of symptoms, but then I got over it quickly. But thank you to Ben for holding it down because I felt awful. I mean, I felt awful anyway, but I also felt awful about not being here. I would have felt terrible if you missed episode 100 and the Uh, cake. That would have really been horrible. (laughs) That would have been a big bummer. (laughs) Well, maybe I'll get you a big COVID cake for next week. (laughs) But in the meantime, you just so happened to be a part of a little interview that went national (laughs) in a country music trade publication. You got contacted Mm -hmm. to talk about a little something called imposter syndrome. And for people who don't know what that is, why don't we just start here by having you describe it? So basically, it's that experience where you feel like you're a fraud and that people are going to find out that you really don't know as much as they think that you know, that you feel like you're going to be found out as a phony. And it really doesn't matter your background or your skill level. We'll talk about some of the things that may be contributing to it. But they say that over 70% of people will experience this feeling at least once in their lifetime. And usually it happens during times of transition. That can uh, happen a I hope lot. you're going to say once a week. Damn it. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But it's very interesting. I think it's important to normalize this because I've had clients come to me and they're like, I have this weird feeling. People are going to think that I'm a big phony or that that I'm a fraud and things that I think that I'm good at, but for some reason, I'm feeling very insecure about it. It is a normal feeling. A lot of us have had it here and there, and a lot of us actually have it more than that. So we'll talk about that too. Well, let me ask you this. Is this something that applies primarily to career pursuits or can it leak into other things? Can it leak into, say, a romantic relationship mm-hmm. where maybe you've had a lot of failures in the past, you get into one right. where you're really comfortable and you feel good about it, but your self-esteem is so low, you start thinking, like I do in my marriage daily, she's going to figure out that I'm a lot uglier than her, (laughs) that I'm not really all that funny or charming, and this whole thing is going to come crashing down. Well, I think that's a perfect example. Yeah, actually, that can happen in all different facets of life. And I think a lot of times we focus on the career piece because that seems to be where it's dominant. But yeah, I think that probably people think that sometimes like, oh, they're going to find out I'm not the best mom in the world, or I'm not the best partner, or the best husband. And so, yeah, I think that we all have those insecurities and we may feel that in different areas of our life. And here's where I think it might be experienced a little bit more nowadays versus maybe, let's say, in decades past. And it always comes back to social media, Courtney, Mm -hmm. because how many times do we talk about we try to present this version of us to the world and we're so afraid that they're going to see that the mighty Oz is really that man behind the curtain who's pulling the levers and maybe not necessarily who you want everybody to believe that Mm -hmm. you are. 
And you also look at social media and you do a lot of comparing. Mm-hmm. So you look at other people and you say, wow, they look like they have it all together. Who am I to think that I'm doing so great? Maybe I'm not. And you start to question yourself. So I think from that insecurity, there can be a lot of questioning and comparing. And social media is great for feeding that, as we know. Now, we have a very high profile example of this that we discussed on our morning radio show this morning mm-hmm. as we tape here. Jason Aldean, who is as successful as they get mm-hmm. in the music business, country music for people who don't know. And now he has a double album that he's released in increments, mm-hmm. the second half of which, is that out yet? The second one yeah, the yeah, second came out last came week, out, I yep. guess. He was talking about recently how on both albums, he's written none of the songs. And the amazing thing is, when he first came to Nashville many years ago, he came to be a songwriter. Mm-hmm. But he quickly discovered that he was his own worst critic. And it's at the point now that he has not written a song since 2009. Right. That's 13 years. He's priding himself in the fact that he's able to pick good songs that other people write Mm -hmm. and he's also made himself feel better by saying George Strait who is a country music legend he really didn't write his own songs he had a knack for that kind of thing but I just can't bring myself to do it and I suppose he's in a comfortable enough of a financial position and things seem to be going well doing things the way that he's doing them that he can justify it but some of this as you said to me this morning could have something to do with imposter syndrome I wonder if it comes from that it's interesting he did a lot of work he said he would sit in a room and he would write songs all day when he first came to Nashville, and that's what he was hired for. And it's interesting that he's not writing because he's got so much that he can pull from because he has other people write about some of his stuff in his life. He has a song coming out that he said it's about his wife. Mm-hmm. Other people wrote it. So probably he has some kind of insecurity with it. Like he said, he's his own worst critic when it comes to that. And I don't know if there was a pivotal moment or if it was an accumulation of things where he just felt like this wasn't where his strength was. But it's interesting. I wonder if it has something to do with imposter syndrome. I wonder if part of it is this, because I started reading down a list of the songs that he did write versus the ones that he didn't, and all of his biggest hits not written by him. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's feeding into it as well. Right. This is what it can do. This happens across the board, but with people in a creative field, it's probably particularly difficult because other people were measuring up to like what other people have to say about our creative endeavors. And sometimes that's very personal, the work that we put out. And especially in that way, like you said, if he's looking at it and judging it based on other things like how the song charts and that kind of thing. I wonder if that's what's feeding into this too. Well, the other piece to that too is having worked in creative fields for over 30 years now myself, everybody's got an opinion Mm -hmm. on what you're doing. And a lot of people aren't even people who necessarily do it. Those who can't do teach, it's one of those situations. I referenced earlier this morning on our show, the movie Private Parts, the Howard Stern vehicle, Mm -hmm. and just all of the idiots that he had to deal with throughout the years who thought they knew better and he was constantly trying to prove them wrong. That was a guy who did not have imposter syndrome. That was a guy who was probably narcissistic and egomaniac, (laughs) thought he knew better, proved himself to be right. But along the way, when you're constantly being told otherwise, when you are going through this weekly grind as we do, looking at ratings, Mm -hmm. when you're on social media, people are telling you that you suck, things like that, you do start to question some of those things. And even sometimes it can be show to show. Right. If I feel like I have what is a great show in my mind, I never go back and listen to it because Mm -hmm. if I do, I'll be like, well, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. (laughs) I thought it was a lot better than that. And even if I do feel like I have a great show, it doesn't linger. I'm like, all right, time to start focusing on the next one. But when I have what I think is a bad one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that 
That'll stick with me for a couple of days. Yeah, it does. It was interesting because after I was part of the article and she wrote the article and put it out, I had gotten a couple of emails back from it. People were just wanting to talk about it. And one woman wrote to me and she showed me something she has up in her office to remind her that if you're going to be a great creator, you also need to be able to put yourself out there and you need to be able to fail too. And so this is part of it is taking that sting out. Like if somebody has some constructive criticism for you, okay, let's take that and also take it with a grain of salt where it's coming from and is this someone that you trust and has an opinion that you really value. But also knowing that sometimes you're going to fail at things and you got to throw it out there and see what sticks because that's part of the creative process. If you don't do that, you're stifling yourself. So it's really kind of rewriting some of the things that we're saying in our head like, oh, I can't fail. I have to always be 100%. Everything has to work. Just like with you, not all the shows are going to be 110%, but knowing that that's part of the creative process of throwing things out there. It's interesting that you bring up the example of that woman and the failures because just last week, there is somebody who runs a local theater here who has a week-long thing every July where it's kind of a camp and they bring in people who are successful in various areas of show business to talk to the kids. And this woman said to me, you are the perfect person because you've done so many different things. You've done radio, you've done writing for TV, you've done roasts, you've done stand-up comedy and on and on and on. And she said, I'm going to need a bio from you. So I had to sit down and I haven't written a bio in a very long time and I don't necessarily feel very good about myself ever. So I started writing down some of the things that I have accomplished and as I was writing it, I was like, wow. Like I had to start cutting it down. And I thought, I have accomplished a lot. But no sooner did I finish writing it and I was pretty satisfied with what I had that I started thinking about what I'm going to tell these kids. And I think the most important lesson I can tell them is, look, you can look at this bio and see this body of work and say, wow, I really hope that I turn out like this guy because he's been on a path where nothing has gone wrong. No, I have had immensely more failures. I have had way more no's than I've had yeses. And there are so many times where I could have packed it in and said, screw this. I don't need this. You know how much this job gets to me just by working as closely with me as you do. You know how everything gets to me. But from the outside, people would probably look and think everything is fine. And I knew that this was somewhat normal Mm -hmm. because I was such a big David Letterman fan. And he used to always talk about how, and to me, he was the mountaintop. I'm like, if I could be one-tenth that talented, I'd be happy. He said every day he would sit in his office just waiting to feel the poke on the shoulder for somebody to come up and be like, okay, the jig is up. We figured you out. Pack your stuff up and get out of here. I look at somebody like Eddie Van Halen, who I've talked about for many, many years, as somebody who I just thought was this genius. And he was just so insecure. He felt many times that he could not do a show unless his mind was altered by various substances, drinking, Mm -hmm. things like that. He was so nervous to get up in front of a crowd. I've met Carrie Underwood. I see how uncomfortable she is person to person in those situations. A lot of people think she's stuck up, but I can sense the insecurity because I am that. And then you watch her go out in front of 30,000 people and it's as if she's just owning everything. And that's the thing. Even people like me who are insecure, and you say this all the time too about how even when I interact with other people in everyday life and I'm screaming inside and you say, Brian, to look at you, you would never know. And I think we do a lot to try to hide all of Mm -hmm. that from other people. But if we're pushing it down and not addressing it ourselves through therapy or whatever else, that can really start to get to be a problem. If it's interfering with your functioning, 
especially with this imposter syndrome, if it's something that you're finding that it happens once in a while, it's through transition or different times in your life, okay. But if it's something that keeps being a reoccurring theme and it's holding you back from your greatness, from shining your light, from being all that you can be, I mean, I know it sounds like a be all that you can be. There's so many things that we're here to do, but that insecurity can pull us back and hold us down. And so if you're finding that that's happening, definitely getting some help around it, getting some therapy around it. Also, just talking about it, I think is so important and normalizing it that, yeah, a lot of us go through this. I know I felt that way when I first got into therapy and I went to school and I did everything I was supposed to do. I did all my clinical hours. I did my supervision, all of these things. But still, I would be fine sitting in front of a client and helping them and trying to process with them and all of these things. But if somebody put that label on me, like you are a clinical therapist, all of a sudden I'd be like, oh my gosh, no, no, it's just me. I'm just Courtney. Ah, I even have a hard time sometimes with the letters after my name. I feel like I worked hard for them. I paid for school for that. But yet sometimes I have to put it for things and I'm like, oh, are people going to think that I think that I'm all that? It's weird. Like these thoughts come up sometimes and you have to challenge them and normalize it and say, it's okay that we feel this way sometimes, but also to challenge some of our thinking behind it. And here's where it can become really dangerous, because if you are the voice inside your head saying, I don't deserve that, there is an element of Mm self-sabotage that can take over and actually destroy the thing that you love and that you really are Mm -hmm. good at. And I just had a thing yesterday where I take a daily nap because I'm an old man. I get up very early. (laughs) He loves his naps, people. And my (laughs) wife will get home from work and she will ask me, how was your nap? And yesterday I said, my nap was terrible. And she said, well, why? I said, because I couldn't shut my brain off and it was driving me crazy. And Mm -hmm. she said, well, what were you thinking about? And my answer was my career. I just feel like I'm kind of stuck in neutral right now. I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything new. I've tried to do a couple of things really hard that were easier to do when I was younger. And lately, I just can't seem to get that traction. And I just laid there in bed and beat myself up for like an hour and a half before I finally said, all right, it's just time to get up. Mm -hmm. And I said to her too, I just don't know what else to do to change it. And then it does start to make you question everything. She said to me, well, why do you think this is? Why do you think you're stuck in this little rut? And I said, well, maybe I've started to suck and nobody has the courage to tell me because I've seen that happen to other people. I saw that happen to Letterman when he started to take the foot off the gas Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to work as hard. But all the yes men and women around him didn't want to tell him that. And then finally he started to realize we were talking about the departure of James Corden this morning and how he's been way more popular virally Mm -hmm. online than his audience has been on TV. Dave realized he had to start doing those kinds of things. It was going to be more work and then he finally got to the point he said, said I don't now do I'm all set I'm done when in reality he probably should have pulled the plug maybe 10 years mm-hmm. earlier but that's the thought process that's how I get inside my yeah. own head and that's where I can become self-destructive well you've got to challenge that Brian because you do not suck so stop with that <laughs> you're only mediocre you don't suck <laughs> I mean, you're not terrible no you are still awesome your brain is like boop, 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 boop. every day is just looking at you going oh how does he come up with these things <laughs> but isn't that the problem though we talk about it all the time my brain is boop, 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 mm-hmm. and that's what it was in bed yesterday. And right. when it starts to focus on something that is detrimental mm-hmm. to my psyche, it can't let go of that. Just like when I'm using it for good right. and using it from an improvisational standpoint, and I feel like I'm nailing it. Maybe I'm not, and people just aren't telling me. <laughs> that's where my brain can be my best friend and my worst yeah. enemy. And that's the thing is trying to stop it before it gets to the level 10. When you start to feel that coming on or you start to feel some anxiety coming on, trying to shift and think of some other things or get out a notebook and write all that stuff down.
from and say, okay, brain, I'll deal with that when I get up after I take my nap. Your brain wants you to keep focusing on it because it wants to figure out, just like you said, there's kind of a riddle there. Like what's going on? Why can't I get out of my way on certain things? Or why can't I see beyond where I'm at right now? Why can't I find that next new challenge? And so sometimes it's getting all of that stuff out of your brain, trying to take a rest from it, trying to divert to other things, and then going back to it when you're feeling a little bit better about being more objective about it. I know it's very difficult because your brain, it does, it has the two sides. I mean, it works for good, but it can also get you stuck in all of that negative thinking. And that's where I have needed therapy. And that's what I recommend for people who Mm -hmm. are fighting this battle. And I wonder, how often are you seeing this kind of thing in your office, the imposter syndrome? Mm -hmm. And is it something that you think has been on the increase over the last few years? Well, it's funny. I think with some of my clients, I've seen it about career stuff, like them maybe getting back into the workforce Mm -hmm. or trying a new job. Like I said before, a lot of times with transition, sometimes you see it when people Maybe they grew up in a family that was very critical, or people would always point out what they couldn't do, so they were always trying to prove what they could do. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) So that can kind of set us up sometimes, maybe dealing with perfectionism, like everything has to be 110, can't make any mistakes, so you're always judging yourself. Those are the kind of things we have to work at and say, wait a minute, let me question this. How am I looking at this? I don't particularly see it as a rise right now, but other people's practices, depending on who they're working with, they may have seen this. But I think it's interesting, like you had said earlier, too, I see it in relationships, too, like, Mm -hmm. oh, this person's going to find out that I'm not so great. And so we work on that. Like, where do these thoughts come from? And why is it that you can't give yourself a break just when you make a mistake on something? These are important things to address. Looking into some good coping and relaxation and trying to help yourself in that way. But talking to people, especially if you're in an industry where this is happening, this is one of the things we were talking about in the article, normalizing that, that you can talk about it and say, hey, listen, like in radio, for instance, we have a lot of pressure about people listening, the ratings. It's always about that. In other businesses, it's about productivity. How many people have you seen? Talking to your boss about it or just saying, hey, like this is a little stressful. Having that normalized or especially with your peers too and saying, yeah, is this difficult? Just having a quick conversation sometimes with my peers about things that make you start to feel insecure can be really helpful. Now, as to what you were saying about maybe being brought up in an environment where you were getting a lot of criticism, Mm -hmm. you weren't made to feel as if you were accomplishing anything. I made a very flip dismissive and sarcastic remark (laughs) about my own family as if I was throwing them under the bus. And I do want to make something clear. I do know that my parents were very hard on both my brother and myself. And I had to investigate why that was as I got older, as I get into therapy. And I had to start asking those questions. What was the motivation there? And what I realized was it wasn't abusive behavior. It wasn't anything that they were trying to do to knock me off track. If anything, they sensed a lack of motivation in me and a laziness. And if I'm not into something, I really can get lazy. I was very lazy about keeping my room clean. Sometimes, even though I did very well in school, I hated it. So I didn't put a lot of work into it. And yet I still continued to succeed. And they started to think that, oh my God, when he gets older, he's going to be this way. And sometimes you have to force yourself to do things that you don't want to do. And we don't see that in him. So I think that was the motivation Mm. behind what they were trying to do for me. And by the same token, they saw some of the choices that I was making because the things that appealed to me were jobs that they perceived to be long 
long shots, and they thought, oh my God, if he goes for that brass ring and he misses and he falls, and then he has to do that thing he doesn't want to do, what's going to become of him? There was no way for me to process that as a teenager, right, of course, right. but when my mom would say, you'd better marry Rich, I would think, wow, <laughs> I must be pretty worthless. She must not really think all that much of me because, I mean, she was panicking to a certain extent, mm-hmm. and she was trying to be funny, which I didn't really see the humor <laughs> at the time. Right. But, you know, those things, they leave marks. Of course. And it's a great acknowledgement to say they weren't trying to be mean about no. it. They weren't trying to be hurtful. But a lot of times, especially in relationships like that, our parents and with our kids and that kind of thing, it's we'll say things because we're really concerned about them. Mm-hmm. We want to help them get to their next level. But as we've known, especially from the past, sometimes we don't handle it the best way. We are playing on insecurities and we're trying to push people, but not from a positive stance. Well, and if you're already an insecure person, what's going to happen when you hear those things? It's only going to feed those insecurities. It's not going to act as a motivator. And that's what they maybe weren't realizing. And that's because they came from a generation where things like therapy, not really something anybody did. Martin Mm -hmm. Short, I've talked about him, how he lost a lot of loved ones at a very young age. And at a time where he said, we were just supposed to hop on our bike, ride around and figure it out for ourselves. That was the attitude then. But the good news is hopefully we're enlightened enough. We've evolved enough as a society. And hopefully we are pushing you in the right direction to say, hey, go talk to Mm -hmm. somebody. Go talk to a therapist. And it's interesting. Carolyn Hacks. I'm going to bring her up again, Courtney. We discuss her all the time. (laughs) I saw this woman who was having an issue with her parents, where her parents make her really, really feel bad. Mm -hmm. And she was wondering, is it appropriate for me or is it okay for me to just totally withdraw? And I know what your answer is going to be. You're going to tell me to go into therapy, but I don't really feel comfortable with therapy. I'm very uncomfortable talking to strangers about my problems. And then you've spelled it out for me that sometimes it's going to take me a long time Mm -hmm. to find that perfect fit. And I can't imagine laying everything that bare in front of a complete and total stranger, maybe multiple times. So what do you have for somebody like me? And not only did Carolyn respond to it, but people who have been through therapy also responded to it by saying, look, it's not the kind of thing where take a romantic relationship. You don't walk in married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an evolution. It is something that you incrementally work at to establish trust and all of those other things. And I know in therapy, people want it fixed now. <laughs> they want right. to come in and they want it fixed. But no, it's like a nice hot bath. You ease yourself into mm-hmm. it. You don't dive in head first. And right. I think that's where a lot of people get scared. And if they feel insecure and they feel that vulnerability, mm-hmm. they're going to be even more resistant to therapy. Of course. And that's a good way to put it. Just dip your toe in. Just start out. Just say, hey, let me try a session. Don't try to think like, oh, okay, this is going to be the be all end all. It's going to fix all my problems and I have to commit to all these sessions and all of this. If you're nervous about it, just try a session and just see how it goes. See how it feels to sit in that seat. You may surprise yourself. I've had a lot of people say whether they came to me because they had to and they were court ordered or they were told they really need to. But sometimes people were very resistant coming in, but they were pleasantly surprised that it's not so scary. And the best thing I get to do is hold a space for people to hear themselves. I'm not there to be yet another person telling them, oh, you know what you should do, because they have a lot of that in their lives. They have the people telling them, this is how it should be. This is what you should do. They have this space where I can listen to them. I can reflect back to them. I can give them feedback, but I also let them hear themselves for the first time, maybe in their whole lives where they get to sit there and just be like, wow, it never struck me that way before. And they have these great aha moments. So I think that for what I do, that is the beauty 
beauty of it. And I love that having more self-reflection and having these insightful moments. And so for the people who are afraid to do that and feeling insecure, just committing to one session, one session at a time and see where it opens up. And as the patient in this equation, I feel like I do have to constantly remind people of one thing. If you're doing this right, you're doing most of the work. Mm -hmm. It's not that you get in there and you get lectured and you get questioned and you get berated and you get judged. That's not what it is. But that woman who wrote into Carolyn Hacks, Mm -hmm. I think, presumes that that is the deal. And she feels like she has to unload all of her deepest, darkest secrets in session one and then get told, you're doing this wrong, you're Mm -hmm. a horrible person. That's not what therapy is. No, You go at your own pace. And I tell people, listen, I have to build trust with you and I have to earn your trust so that you will feel comfortable to tell me certain things. You don't need to tell me anything at first. Just talk to me about where you're at right now and what your concern is. You don't need to go into all of your past until you're ready, until you are feeling that trust. That's important to put people at ease, but to validate them in that way. Like it's normal to feel that insecurity and feeling nervous about that when you first come to therapy. And I'm willing to bet that there is such a thing as imposter syndrome as a patient Mm -hmm. in therapy, where much like on social media, they come in and they want you to see them in a certain way Mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily genuine. And they're trying to hide behind that because they're so afraid of addressing the thing that is wrong because that is their Achilles heel. And they don't necessarily want to expose that to you, which I think makes your job that much more difficult. But it also speaks to how slowly this process can move. And it's not this thing where you're shot out of a cannon. Mm -hmm. It's about both of you just taking little baby steps, getting closer to each other before you can finally find where that line is, that middle ground, and start doing some real work. Right, exactly. And it is amazing to see when you start opening up to that real work. And part of that is to say, no, it's okay. Wherever you're at, that's okay. The other thing is, Sometimes people want to be the perfect client. Like, I don't want to be the one who's being difficult. I want to have all the answers. Do they want to be your star pupil in a (laughs) way? Is that what it is? I've had people say, am I your best client? I am, aren't I? (laughs) (laughs) And I say, of course. I love all my clients. And everybody brings something different to the table. And you know what? Every session is kind of different. It's a different thing with each person, depending on where they're at. I have a set of skills and I have a set of things that I like to do. But it's going to be different with everyone, depending on where they're at with their coping skills, where they're at with how they're feeling about things going on in their lives and what they've accepted and their insights and stuff like that. So I hold each space differently and I just get curious, like, oh, what's going on today? Where are we going and how can I help you? Especially in dealing with something like this with imposter syndrome, I get it that it could be that ironic thing. Like, I don't want to go talk to the therapist about this because what if they say, oh yeah, this is true. You should feel this way. No, this is a great place to start to peel back some of these layers and see what is going on and where this comes from. Like you said, it could come from childhood, from a lot of places. And it doesn't matter your actual skill level or talent. This happens to everyone at some point. Like they said, 70% of people are experiencing this at one time or another. And to speak to what you were just saying, as they say, no two snowflakes are alike. And I think the people who are hesitant to get into therapy, what they don't realize is they walk in there thinking that you're in the driver's seat. 
Mm-hmm. That's not true at all. They're in the driver's seat. If anything, you're in the back seat. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you're not the one who is steering the way things are going. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what intimidates them right. is that it's going to be you passing judgment on them, criticizing them, mm-hmm. questioning them. No, it's you giving them the space to talk things out and to, in some ways, talk things out so much that you start to almost come to the conclusion yourself. Right. Now, you do have a hand in it because you're guiding them down a path, mm-hmm. but in such a subtle way that they don't even see what's going on. It's kind of like sleight of hand with magicians. You see the trick, but you don't see how they do it. And you're like, how did they do that? And when therapy is successful, that's the feeling that you get when you walk out of the office feeling so much better. Mm. You're just like, what the hell just happened in there? (laughs) Well, as they say, it's a mix of science and also art. There's Mm -hmm. an art to it. It's not just all about the book stuff and the coping and just hard and fast rules on things. There is an art to therapy. You got to know where someone's at, when they're ready to move to their next level, what you can do to try to help guide that. It can be a really beautiful process for people who are feeling hesitant about it. Like I said, not feeling like you have to commit to this whole long journey. Just like when I went back to school, I was like, listen, I don't even know if I even want to go back to school. What do I want to do that for? And so I was going for my master's. But at first I just said, just take a class. Then I said, all right, I'll take two classes in one semester and I'll see what happens. And then after that, okay, that was okay. Let me take two more. And then from there I started to build and see, okay, well, I could go to school for therapy. I can do this. I can do that. But I didn't fully commit to it because I wasn't ready to. And if I tried to just totally commit to it, I probably would have been afraid and never started because it sounded so heavy to me. But just starting the process, you start to see it unfold and it helps you to feel like, oh, okay, I think this is helpful for me. Let me ask you this. When you go to school for your master's, do they have detention? (laughs) That was the thing I really hated about school. Yeah. Is that what you were nervous about? You're like, I'm not a lot of time there. Exactly. More time there than in the classroom. Now, Courtney, we've been going on for so long here. I think this might actually be episode 100. But before (laughs) we wrap up, I just want to make sure because I know you have some copious oh, notes yes, there. I, I want to make sure n- that you've covered everything that you want to cover. Is there anything there that you haven't covered that you want to talk about? Or is there a way that you want to put a nice little bow on it? Well, the thing is, I just want people to know that this is a normal feeling that we get, the imposter syndrome feeling that we're a fraud, we're going to get found out, that we're not as good as we think we are or other people might think that we are. So it's really important to look at your thought process to challenge some of that. We call it CBT, the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Looking at some of those underlying thoughts and saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe I don't need to be perfect. Maybe I don't need to be always right about things. Maybe I can make mistakes and that's okay. Challenging some of that. But if you feel that this is something that we all can feel sometimes during times of transition, new jobs, new relationships, stuff like that. But if you feel that it's interfering with your life and it's causing issues and it's pulling you away from what you really want in life, that's when you need to look into maybe getting some help around it so that you can live your best life and you can step out there and feel more confident knowing that we all have our insecurities, but being able to turn that knob down so that they're not constantly bombarding you, that you know, okay, I have my insecurities. That little gremlin voice, as we call it in coaching, is kind of giving me a hard time right now, but I'm going to turn the volume down. I'm going to say, thank you so much for your information, but I'm still going to do what I need to do. If it's interfering to the fact of where you just feel paralyzed by things, that's when you really need to get some help. And speaking to that perfectionism, the analogy that I always use is this. There were times when I was in Hollywood working in television and I worked with people who were a lot more talented than I was. You know, I came up with the likes of Patton Oswalt, Will Forte. I was working alongside people like Will Ferrell and Mike Myers. And many times I just thought, well, what am I doing here? I mean, I just don't belong in this room and I would get overwhelmed. But then I reminded myself that when it comes to 
this little area of a career, not everybody is going to be LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is going to be Michael Jordan. But can I be Scottie Pippen? Can right. I be Steve Kerr? Can I be a person who deserves to be on the court mm-hmm. with those people? And we can all work together to get one common goal, which right. is put on the best show possible. And that's what would always make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Stop trying to be Michael Jordan. You're never going to be Michael Jordan. It's like when I was playing the guitar and I figured out one day I'm never going to be Eddie Van Halen. And not only that, I'm not even going to come within a thousand miles of Eddie Van Halen. But boy, there's a lot of TV and radio that sucks. So I think I could contribute something there. <laughs> right. Find your niche mm-hmm. and don't put that kind of pressure on yourself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes good enough is good enough. Yes, exactly. And that's the thing to remember. Like you said, I like how you put that too. A team, not everybody is going to be the same and you don't want to be the same. You don't want to just always be aspiring to be that best, best, best. You want to be really good at what you do and you want to get your skill set and work hard at it. But we're all going to be different. We're going to bring something different to the table. And that's cool. That's good. That's a great thing. So again, to bring it full circle, shoot for mediocrity. (laughs) Just be good enough to stay in the room. Don't give yourself a hard time and have to be perfect all the time. Courtney, if people would like to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Well, you can email me, wellness at wctk.com. And also just a reminder, we have some great resources up on the wellness 411 page, catcountry.com. Socials at Cat Country Mornings on just about all of the platforms, personal pages, Courtney with the C, Kelly E-Y, Bedard sometimes I, Brian with an I, Mulhern, H-E-R-N. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can get us on your smart devices. Tell people about the show. Mm-hmm. Tell people who have the problems that we are addressing about this so we can help them and you can also have a hand right. in helping them. And I just wonder, oh, the pressure is on for that centennial <laughs> oh. episode. Oh, God, it's got to be a big one. It's got to be really, really good. Maybe Cake is going to have to save the day because the topic's just not going to be up to snuff. What will we be talking about? We don't know. Are you going to care? We never know. That's where we get imposter syndrome. We hope you can. We're looking at the downloads. How come they're down this month? What's going on? <laughs> Should we stop and just eat cake? We're good at that. <laughs> Tune in next week to find out, as always. Thank you, Courtney. And thank you, Brian. And thank you all for listening to Coping on the Couch with Courtney and Brian. I want to